0: In the midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled, Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Everyone's heard about them and nobody knows what they are. Okay, so today's episode is all about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how their discovery has shaped what I believe. In this little mini-series on the Bible, I've tried to emphasize each week that the Bible did not float down from heaven, but rather came together like any other book written by humans. Yet, all along the way, God was inspiring and preserving exactly what He wanted me to have in 2021. I guess the theme verse for all of this would be second Peter one twenty and twenty one It says this, knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a good thing. it's all good stuff. Don't let some history channel special. Fool you, uh, you know the Dead Sea Scrolls. The title alone has like this mysterious Indiana Jones kind of ring to it, and various media outlets will use anything they can to make money. So there are plenty of bogus stories or very stretched stories about what's been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. As a as a Christian, I mean, think about it this way: as a Christian, I do not fear archaeological discoveries. I am a Christian because I believe that it's true. If in the future some discovery completely disproves Christianity, great, awesome, wonderful. I don't want to believe something that is not true. I don't want to believe something just for the sake of having something to believe in. And so I believe these things because I'm in, I am convinced that they are true. The Dead Sea scrolls strengthen that belief. They do not damage it. Okay? Now, I mentioned last episode that the Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad Codex... Codex, by the way, is is like a, a way of saying book, and so like, a, like an older form of a book where they took papyrus sheets and sort of laid them together and bound them like a book. Anyway, the Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad Codex were the oldest Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, and they were dated to almost a 1,000 years A.D., and so the question was, how can we know what the Old Testament said during the time of Jesus? And, and wouldn't that be great if we discovered manuscripts of the Old Testament, which dated to just before the time of Christ? I mean, that would be awesome, right? That would be a, a crucial time in history to know what the Old Testament said. And so of any time in history, that would be one of the most important. And guess what? That happened with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So here's an outline today. Uh, Because a lot of people don't really know much detail, they've just heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they don't know a lot of the details, I'm approaching this from the, uh, so my outline will basically be like who, where, when, what, and then finally I'm going to close with why. Like why are the Dead Sea Scrolls important to Christians? Why is it important to me? And so that's what I'll kind of close with. So uh, just just a basic sort of overview of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can always connect with me at bearchristianity at gmail.com. That's my email. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and message me there at the real bear Martin. And then certainly send in questions or comments. You can send in questions about Bible stuff. You can send in more uh, kind of silly questions that I'll cover in a bear in the woods. Um, doesn't have to be silly, but just you know, just just stuff that we interact with each day. And then also, if you would, leave a five-star review and add a positive comment on whatever app you're listening to this podcast. That helps this podcast spread to other people when they're searching for podcast in the Christian category, Christian or religious category. So uh, right now, I'd like to do our special little segment called A Bear in the Woods. This question is also listener-inspired, and so I appreciate those questions. And this is, is certainly applicable to what we've been talking about recently. Bear, when did we start using BC and AD? Now, there used to be many different methods for tracking the years and calendars. And even the Dead Sea Scrolls have many texts that are calendrical texts. They talk about different ways of dating things. So this, is a, this was a huge issue, especially in the ancient world. And there were all different methods of doing that. Diocletian, the 51st emperor of Rome, in his great humility, started a calendar based on his birth year, and it—I guess it was called A.D., but it stood for Anno Diocletiani. Okay, A.D. Anno Diocletiani—that is, um, in the year of Diocletian, basically—is <laughs> it's, it's Latin. And so, around 250 years later, a monk named Dionysius. So we got Diocletian which is the emperor, and Dionysius is the monk. The monk developed a calendar system, and he based his starting year as his estimated year of Christ's birth. Now, although his efforts are very noble, most modern scholars will date Jesus' birth to around 4 BC. And so, I guess it's actually 2025, so maybe we can take off our mask now, who knows? (laughs) Anyway, uh, Dionysius, his calendar was sort of a jab at Diocletian, the emperor because Diocletian, the emperor, he is known for his awful persecution of Christians. And so this monk was uh, wanting to to get away from this awful emperor's calendar. And so he started this calendar and, and it's abbreviated AD as well. But now it stood for Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So that's what caught on. Now, it took a while for this new calendar to on and start being used, but about two centuries after Dionysius, the BC component was introduced and it simply means before Christ. And then in the ninth century, finally, in the ninth century, the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne made this BC AD calendar system the standard for any acts of government as they're documenting governmental stuff. And so throughout Europe it spread and then we still use it today. So, a few interesting facts. There is no year zero. It goes from 1 BC to 1 AD, and then also you may see the abbreviations BCE, slash you know CE. CE stands for Common Era, and BCE stands for, you guessed it, before Common Era. Now they, they are they're equivalent to the BC convention. It's just they mean you know different things now. Why the different meaning? Some would argue that we should avoid this BC, AD notation because there are um, it's likely inaccurate. Like I said, a lot of people think that uh, Jesus was born fo- at 4 BC, and so because it's slightly inaccurate, we shouldn't use that. Others argue that we should avoid BC and AD because these are Christian terms and we should be sensitive to those who may be offended by the use of BC and AD. Never mind that it may be offensive to Christians to try to wipe Jesus from anything in culture. You know, we abbreviate Christmas as Xmas, or we call it holiday instead of Christmas. Notice how it's okay to offend Christians, but our world cannot bear the thought of being offended by Christians. In many ways, Christianity is offensive. I mean, basically, you know, the beginning of it is you are a sinner and you deserve punishment by your Creator. Um, so yeah, I can see how people are offended when they're when they're called that. Um, yet as Christians, we should also show the love of God. And so yes, you you are a sinner, everybody is. Christians are. we're We're not claiming to be uh, perfect people or better than anyone at all. What we're saying is that everyone is a sinner before God, and you need a savior. And so yeah, that can be offensive but changing things like christmas to holiday or or writing it as xmas that is not something that is as against me that, that that is against my lord and savior that so that's that's the way christians view that it's it's not a slam against us but the world is trying to wipe away jesus from from any existence in culture and that is, that is a bad thing in Christians' opinion. We need Jesus, and we want to honor, Christians want to honor Jesus. And so when you, you take his name out of everything, then that, that's why there's, a, um, there's pushback there from Christianity. So I'm going to keep calling it B.C. and A.D. Now, that's just my opinion, and this has been A Bear in the Woods. Okay, our first investigative question about the Dead Sea Scrolls is who. So there's two who's I want to talk about here. Who found the scrolls? I mentioned this a little bit in last episode, but there was a shepherd boy who found, uh, basically he was throwing rocks into a cave trying to scare some goats back out of the cave, and he heard some clay pots breaking, or, or he heard, you know, crashing around and it turned out to be some clay pots. And so... They got these scrolls. He go, go get, goes and gets some buddies. They go get the scrolls and sell them to a to people in the area that are collecting things like this. And then eventually this prompted extensive searching and excavations in that region of the world. Now, many of the scrolls are, are torn into strips. And some of this is just from worms and decay and things like that. But some of the pieces were actually torn by these Bedouin shepherds because they could sell more pieces. So (laughs) pretty clever of them that uh, they find these scrolls and they tear them up in pieces and then they can go, you know, every couple of days they go and say, oh, I found more. And they just keep getting to sell these pieces. Now, here's the here's the thing, though. They didn't know what they had because some of these initial scrolls sold for just a few dollars in 1947, and they are valued at several million dollars today. So extremely valuable. Now, that was the first who who found the scrolls. Now, who wrote these scrolls or who collected these scrolls? Sometimes the people who must have written and stored these scrolls, they're simply referred to as the Qumran community. And so the the Qumran is the area that these caves were found. The most popular hypothesis is that this community belonged to a sect of what's called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. So historians from that time period, such as Josephus, they describe the Essenes, and much of their descriptions seem to match some of the non-biblical writings that are found as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's a popular hypothesis, but there are many. There are two documents that were found at Qumran which tell us different things about this group. The first one, this document is known as the Community Rule, and this document describes a lot of rituals and vows that the that male members must make to be a part of it's an it's like an all-male community much like uh like monks in a monastery. And so many of the commentaries on the Bible that were found in the caves there they had very strict interpretations of the Bible. So many strict rules and regulations in order to, to be part of this uh, like secluded community and they were extremely concerned with ritual purity and the caves they have many like uh washing basins and stuff like that found in these caves. And these were likely used for all the cere- ceremonial washings that were part of their writings. Now, a different document called the Damascus document, it speaks of marriage and a community with women and children. And so it's unknown at this time if if this was um, if these communities sort of interacted in a way, uh, or if they were separate communities. It, it's, you know, there's there's lots of different theories out about that. So many of the scrolls, though, they give us insight into scribal practices of the day. So in these scrolls, there are notes written in the margin, there are corrections that are made over top of lines of text, and, and they're, they're in different handwriting. So some scrolls, you know, have multiple different people that you can just tell by the different handwriting, things like that. And so some scrolls have uh, corrections written by the same person who actually wrote the original lines of text. And so the evidence here is that many of these scrolls were heavily used. They were studied meticulously. The next investigative question is where? Where were these scrolls found? The majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls are found in caves near Qumran, which is just off of the Dead Sea at about, like if you're looking at the Dead Sea on a map, it's about the 10 or 11 o'clock position. And so that's that's this area is called Qumran, and it consists of 12 caves. Now, if you look up resources on the, on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some will say 11 caves, but the 12th one was was discovered in 2017. So, I mean, they're still excavating uh, in this area and then in caves, you know, kind of up and down the, the Dead Sea coast. And so there's lots of uh, activity. I mean, this discovery was first in 1947, but they're still discovering things. And so it's still kind of an active process. When were the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, d- written. Okay, we've already talked about they were discovered in 1947. But the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated roughly from 250 B.C. to 50 A.D. And this dating is agreed upon by different forms of dating and by scholars from different areas of interest. So basically, I mean, it's, I'm, what I'm saying is it's not just Christian scholars that are claiming that these documents are old. It's the consensus among the experts. And again, a variety of dating methods were used. So they can look at the types of handwriting um, radiocarbon dating, all of that agrees that these were written these scrolls were written uh, from two fifty b c to fifty a d and then each individual scroll can can be dated a little a little more specifically all right now what what was found in these caves so these caves basically you can think of it as an ancient library that that's the best way to to look at it. Some of the scrolls are written on animal skin, and this is referred to as parchment. Other scrolls are written on papyrus, which is made from a, a reed plant, and basically you lay two layers. You lay like a horizontal layer and a vertical layer of these reeds, and then they're pressed together, and they dry, and they form like a like a paper-type material to write on. And then one scroll that was found was forged copper. This is known as, of course, the Copper scroll. And here's what's interesting. It lists 64 places where gold and silver were hidden. So it's like a treasure map. So I'm sure Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, is licking his chops with this stuff. So uh, I can't believe oh, he hadn't written a book yet that that's talked about this. All right. There are still new discoveries from the caves, especially in the surrounding areas. So Qumran has been ex- excavated uh, pretty thoroughly at this point. But there are still new new discoveries in caves and surrounding areas. And also, you may think, good night. They found this in 1947. How much more is there to do? It is not that simple. You can't just go traipsing into the caves. Only one may enter here, one whose worth lies far within, a diamond in the rough. Seriously, it's not easy. You, so you can't just walk in, shine a flashlight around and say, oh, I don't see any clay jars with dust on them. Let's move on. No, most of the caves require extensive excavation. And so some manuscript pieces have actually been found beneath six feet of bat dung and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Also, some people have fallen to their death while excavating these caves or, or they've been caved in with collapsing rocks. So it's a, it's a dangerous, uh, it really is like a dangerous Indiana Jones type of uh, type of thing. Craig Evans is a Christian scholar, and he's done a, done a lot of work with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he's been several, you know, to several of the caves. And he said the rock in general is very soft; like you can easily carve your name in the rock with a knife. And so, you know, two thousand years ago, these caves likely had staircases sort of carved on the um, on the walls to allow for mobility. And there's still evidence of some of this. And also, like I said, there's these wash basins that they they can still. Um, see evidence of of carved wash basins and stuff like that. So um, many caves today are explored with drones first, and then if the drones, you know, find some promising stuff, maybe there's some scrolls there, then that's when they bring in a team and kind of further excavate the cave. So uh, once excavated, most of the manuscripts are in scraps, and so you've got to put like a giant jigsaw puzzle back together, so again, you can imagine this is very, very difficult work. And they're still, like, like here's a little disclaimer. Some of the numbers, like when you go to a museum, if it says, oh, we found so-and-so many scrolls and whatever, some of those numbers are, are inaccurate because we're, they're still sort of uh, putting everything together and, and working on all of this. So, you know, th- they're still, it still varies a little bit. Now, so far, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain over 900 separate works, and just over 200 of these are biblical texts. Now, the biblical texts include text in three different translations, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So in Hebrew, they have every book in the Hebrew Bible except Esther. Esther has, has not been found. And then the research is, kind of varies on Nehemiah, because in the Tanakh, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah are a combined book. And so they found a a scroll with Ezra, and so Nehemiah, I think it was like most of Nehemiah is damaged, or or possibly it doesn't exist. I I found a few different things on Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is just sort of questionable, I guess. Um, There's some Aramaic translations found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible are called Targums. And then there's Greek translations. The most popular Greek translation is is the Septuagint. We talked about that some last time. What's interesting is they still, like in the Greek translations found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they still write the Lord's name in Hebrew, or they abbreviate in Hebrew. This is called the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, stands for Yahweh. Um, so they'll use the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew, or they'll just use like four dots. So they they there's like a certain respect for the Lord's name, where they they still write it back in Hebrew. This is similar to the nomina sacra, and we'll talk about that more when I discuss New Testament manuscripts. So there's biblical text. Again, there's 900 total, fine, you know, total documents found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's a rough estimate number. There's around 200 biblical texts, and the rest of them are are in this category called non-biblical texts, and they include calendars, uh, commentaries on biblical passages, poetry, or or like liturgical readings that were maybe used during like worship services and stuff like that, uh, Bible stories that are kind of expanded, and then sectarian writings that are specific to this religious group, like I talked about the community rule and stuff like that, that have all their little rules and regulations. So uh, lots of other non-biblical texts as well. It's obvious, given the content of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the, the Hebrew Old Testament was the primary focus of this religious sect, because every Book or or scroll that's found as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls is somehow connected to the Old Testament, so all all of their writings are connected to that and then the last investigative question that I want to ask is the why question: Why is this important? Uh, ironically, I will borrow from the only book of the Bible that is of the Old Testament Bible that's not represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that is Esther. Why did you know? Why did we discover the Dead Sea Scrolls when we did? I believe God preserved these scrolls for such a time as this. That's the quote from Esther. Never has the authenticity of Scripture been doubted as much as in the past one hundred years or so. And so I, I see the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls as a gift from God for all Christians. So why are they so important? If you remember. For me, Jesus is the central focus. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then Christianity is true. That that's kind of the the base thing for me. And then if Jesus was raised from the dead, then God is real and God's communication to people occurs in two basic ways. Sometimes God speaks to us privately in dreams, visions, voices. You know, this has happened throughout history, so I don't doubt that. But sort of as a as a check for those claims, you know, for when, when people claim private revelation from God, As a check against that, checks and balances, I believe God speaks to us corporately through Scripture. And so Jesus verified the Old Testament because he referred to it as the standard of truth. When he's arguing with the Jewish leaders, he says, you know, have you not read? It is written, things like that. Also, Jesus commissioned his followers to write the New Testament and spread the gospel throughout the world. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important because they give us insight into what could have been in the Old Testament that Jesus was referring to. So we have kind of a snapshot in history of what what may have been included in the Old Testament. That is so important. So many Old Testament prophecies point to Jesus Christ, and the writers of the New Testament help us connect some of these dots. Now, they didn't just make this up. They didn't get it from anywhere. They got these connections from Jesus himself. Remember, after his resurrection, he said and in Luke 24, 44 through 48, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, again, that's a way of saying the Hebrew Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written and again that's the common way of introducing a quote from scripture thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem you are witnesses of these things so that's what Jesus said so there's three basic things he says thus it is written referring to old testament scriptures and then in several different ways It says that Christ should suffer, that he should rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Now, perhaps the most popular is Isaiah 53, and I usually try not to read long passages because it's tougher for our minds to pay attention to a long quote compared to someone speaking naturally, but this is so important. So I want to read the entire chapter, and here in the ancient text, they did not have chapter breaks. And so the concepts in Isaiah 53, it actually picks up a few verses before the the chapter begins, and so I'm going to read that too. So kind of the end of 52 and and through 53. Also, there's a big discussion here I will not go into, but Jews, as part of their weekly worship, they read sections of the Hebrew Bible, and it's a calendar thing, so they read the same sections each year. And remember, they do not believe Jesus was the true Messiah, And, and although there are many theories... I find it very strange that they skip over this exact portion of Isaiah I'm getting ready to read. It's true, they skip other chapters of Isaiah for various reasons as well. I mean, you can't, there's just not enough um, weeks in the year to read the entire Old Testament. So they do pick portions out. But why did the original Jewish leaders who developed this calendar decide to skip this section? I just find that very interesting. So here we go, Isaiah, starting in 52, verse 13. And remember, this is a prophecy written 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, we don't have the document. We don't have the actual manuscript at 700 BC. But what we do have is a document before the time of Christ. And I'm going to get in that in just a second. So this was written before Jesus was ever born. And if you know anything about Jesus' life... Think about Jesus as I'm reading this and see if this doesn't apply to him. Here we go. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, like a root out of dry ground. That is a prophecy of a virgin birth. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The will of the Lord to crush him. More on this in a future episode. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. This is speaking now of this servant coming back to life of a resurrection. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The Qumran community seemed to like Isaiah, and besides copies of Deuteronomy and Psalms, Isaiah is the third most prevalent book of the Bible that's found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's 36 copies of Psalms, 30 copies of Deuteronomy, and 22 copies of Isaiah. Now, one of the most popular scrolls found is known as the Great Isaiah Scroll because it was one of the best-preserved and contains the entire book of Isaiah. So when we say, you know, 22 copies of Isaiah were found, some of these are not full copies. You know, it could be a page, it could be a few chapters, but the great Isaiah scroll contains almost, I mean, basically the entire book of Isaiah. And when discovered, it was kept in a linen cloth and stored in a clay jar, and so this kept it from a lot of the damage which occurred to the other scrolls. Now, this specific scroll, the Great Isaiah Scroll, it dates from 125 to 100 B.C. That That's what scholars have agreed on that it, that this scroll dates to. That's so important. Again, that's, you know, 125, roughly, 125 years before Jesus is born. Now, Isaiah 53 from the Great Isaiah Scroll was compared to the Aleppo Codex. And that, again, that dated to like the 900s A.D., So there are basically a thousand years between the Great Isaiah Scroll and the Aleppo Codex. And when looking at Isaiah 53, there are some minor spelling differences which do not change any meaning. I mean, think about like like if you spell John, J-O-H-N or J-O-N, it doesn't matter. So there are some minor spelling differences which don't change any meaning at all. And there is one additional word that's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscript, and that word is light, L-I-G-H-T. It's added in verse 11. So let me read verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light and be satisfied. And then the Aleppo Codex would translate this way. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That word light is the only additional word, the only difference, the only significant difference, if you even call that significant, between the scroll written, the great Isaiah scroll written 125 years before Christ compared to the Aleppo Codex, which was written 920, roughly, in the 900s AD. That is massive. Now, I'm not trying to deceive you in thinking that every Dead Sea Scroll just matches that perfectly with the, with the scrolls we have today. There are a lot of differences and uh, and variations and things like that, so I'm not trying to be deceitful, but for this Isaiah 53 passage— It is extremely similar, over a thousand-year period. That is remarkable. So there's amazing similarities there in Isaiah 53. Um, Now, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are variants and things like that, and so, again, I'm not trying to be deceptive, but most of the time, the the textual variants and stuff like that, it does not change the meaning of the text. They are uh, pretty much insignificant. Uh, Bart Ehrman loves to make this quote, and, and he's a New Testament scholar, so we'll talk about him a lot more when we get into the New Testament. But he says this, there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Think about that. There are more variations among our manuscripts than actual words in the New Testament, and he's right about that. But 99.9% of them do not matter. They are little spelling differences or obvious errors that were made, and when you're when you're looking at it you can you can tell it's an error, and so more on this later, but uh, that that little quote can sound startling to someone who believes that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, but when you look into it there there's some there's some hidden stuff in there that Bart Ehrman is not saying, and so in general, the Dead Sea Scrolls are remarkably consistent with the overall content of our modern Bible. There are a few larger variations in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let me give you some examples. Uh, Between 1 Samuel 10 and 11, the Dead Sea Scrolls version of that has an extra paragraph, and it kind of fills in a gap with some historical information. Now, Old Testament scholars, before they ever found the Dead Sea Scrolls, had actually suspected that there may be some missing information because the flow of the story seems kind of disrupted. And so now that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, that gap is closed. And it's likely, here's what likely happened, a scribe accidentally skipped over a few sentences and began copying a little bit further down. Both of those sections, the the paragraph that was missing, both of those sections begin with Nahash the Ammonite. And so it's easy, imagine copying day after day after day. You see Nahash, and you copy that down, and then you you see Nahash again, and you start writing again, and you've accidentally skipped a paragraph. And so stuff like that can happen. Another variation that's kind of a a larger uh, deviation from our modern Bible, in Cave 11, a Psalms scroll has a very different arrangement of the Psalms, as well as nine additional Psalms. But remember, there were 36 copies of Psalms found as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this brings up an interesting point. This community did not seem to be concerned with forcing everything to be the same. Many of these scrolls have the appearance of being used again there were different people's handwriting on them marginal notes you know they would have recognized the differences because these scrolls were being used and read and so if they wanted everything to be the same if they were concerned that there were differences in the scrolls you know they could they certainly could have made a copy and then burned the rest but no it seems like you know it's it, all these differences are preserved that's going to be really important again as we move into the New Testament as well Jeremiah is another book of the Bible in, in which there is some variance with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's two versions of Jeremiah that are preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One version is, is 13% shorter than the other version, and it also has a, a different order. And, so there's, and this, this, this shorter version is more in line with the Septuagint as well. And so there's some differences in, in Jeremiah. And I mentioned last in last week's episode how there's evidence within the Old Testament that scribes were likely updating and revising the literary structure of these Old Testament books. And so some scholars believe that these two versions of Jeremiah are at different stages in sort of the literary forms, and so it's possibly like an older form and a newer form. Again, we don't know, but this Qumran community seemed to have no problem with keeping these side by side. They're... We have no evidence that they were trying to get rid of one and go with the other. They, they just have them all there. Now, why do the Dead Sea Scrolls matter to me? I, you probably can figure this out, but Jesus claimed the Old Testament prophesied his coming. He taught this to his disciples who then passed it on through their teaching and the writing of the New Testament. So for me, I read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And the Dead Sea Scrolls give me evidence that the Old Testament I have today existed in a similar form during the time of Christ. So yes, there are variants within the different copies of books in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'll acknowledge that. Uh, They are not all exactly the same, but their basic teachings are the same. And also, I can have confidence that the Old Testament I am reading in my ESV Bible is based on text that we have a historical basis for during the time of Christ and, and slightly before Christ, and so it, this is not stuff in the Old Testament that's been added or made up centuries after Christ. This is not Christians that are adding in the Old Testament, uh, you know, things that weren't actually there when Jesus lived. And so, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, again, our earliest copy was these these Hebrew texts that were written thousands of, or about a thousand years after Christ. And so the the argument could be made well we don't you know we have no evidence that these these writings ever existed i mean all these prophecies were probably just added by christians over you know over the centuries after christ but because of the dead sea scrolls we have evidence that that is not the case these prophecies existed before christ it all existed bc so yes it would be nice to eventually discover older old testament manuscripts like i mentioned you know isaiah imagine finding a a scroll of Isaiah that was written, you know, uh at 600 BC or something like that. I mean, that would that would be really cool, but I I don't need that for Christianity because what what I need to establish is that the Old Testament I have was was part of the scripture bef- before Jesus. And we have that with the Dead Sea scrolls. Now, based on the findings at Qumran, it seems that the Old Testament canon was not exactly fixed at this point. It was still being finalized. There, there are books in the Apocrypha. There are there other various books which seem to be treated as scripture by the Qumran community. And so an important thing to remember, though, is that we do not have evidence of them trying to unify Any of these variations, they are left out in the open for all to see and and even stored side by side, you know, one Jeremiah scroll and another Jeremiah scroll that's different right there together. And so this is very important for the New Testament as well. And as a Christian, I want it that way. I want everything out in the open. I do not want the church hiding anything. I don't want the people of God trying to destroy anything that disagrees with their copy or their certain belief system. And this very thing happens with sacred text of other religions. And so we will talk about that some in in later episodes. Next week, I will give you some information about how the New Testament came together. And so our closing verse is a repeat from this Isaiah 53 passage that I read earlier. If you are a Christian, would you dwell on these verses in praise of the grace of God in your own salvation? If you are not a Christian, would you consider these verses? Do you realize that you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, "...Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed."